Hosting for With the First Link on the Trek Geeks Podcast Network is brought to you by Fansets, creators of cool pins and memorabilia from your favorite franchises. Visit fansets.com and use code TREKGEEKS, all capital letters, for your exclusive 10% discount. Hello and welcome to With the First Link, the podcast that hopes to make our future as bright and as just as the one that we see in Star Trek The Next Generation. And we think that one way to do that is to recap and discuss the entire series, one episode at a time, doing our best to look at it all through an anti-oppression, pro-diversity, anti-racist lens. I'm Ruthie Helper-Samoshi. And I'm Matthew Simone, and today we'll be talking about The Emissary. This episode was written by Richard Manning and Hans Beimler and directed by Cliff Bold. It first aired on June 24th, 1989. For today's check-in topic, if you had to help someone acclimate to the 21st century, let's say, let's keep it kind of in the realm of about 70-something years ago, what do you think you would want to tell them? I watched Jurassic Park the other day. Such a good movie. And and it occurred to me, I was like, oh, this movie came out in 1993. And then I was like, oh, that was that was 30 years ago. Okay. Can I and blow your I, mind with some... Okay. Continue. And that'll blow your mind. Continue. Oh, yeah. And then I was thinking, okay, well, it's like still like it holds it holds up as a movie. Like it's, it's fantastic. Totally. So then what were people in the... 80s watching movies that were made in the 50s like were they they certainly weren't bringing characters back from the 50s for movies made in the 80s were they like they just brought all those characters back from Jurassic Park <laughs> but I was thinking how is it technology is it eras is it is it those mean like the cultures of storytelling like we've had TV now for a while and that like that format hasn't really changed but before that you had like radio and if people didn't have television in the times of radio then that was really different and and so and is it that changes are just happening more rapidly now like if we were trying to climatize someone to a previous century and you had them the century beforehand how different would that be than it is now i don't know that's I, my first thing to go to was like the internet, and I'm trying to think of everything else besides just not saying, well, we have the internet now. Yeah, it's hard. So, okay, first the thing I want to blow your mind with was something I saw recently that said that Austin Powers, like if Austin Powers were made now, he would be like cryogenically frozen from the 90s, like from when the original <laughs> Austin Powers was made. Right, and so that's that's a thing, right? So his character is so distinctly of that particular era. Yeah. But if we froze someone from the 90s and brought them to today, once we got rid of their baggy clothing, would they really be that much different? Or would their culture be that much different than it is now? I don't know. I know, because as we kind of, you sort of alluded to, in a lot of ways, things change more rapidly now with just like, I don't know, the way we seem to be like really valuing innovation and I don't know this like always moving on to the next best thing or you know whatever it does feel like things are changing really rapidly and maybe this is just my perspective because I was a kid in the 90s but I feel like the 90s is so much less different from now 
than the 60s was from the 90s, even though they are both 30 years apart. I think it also depends on events as well, like like war. This was a time of conflict, and these these Klingons are li- were living through that time of war and conflict with the Federation, and, and that big change. That's the big change. I like the technology itself. I don't think is that much different. They're still living on ships, traveling at faster than light through space. I think the big change is just that there has been a war that's happened, and for people who've lived through the war that I've spoken to. They talk about the how much the world changed in just five years. Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. In that period. Some of you had this intense uh, event that has occurred. It reminded me of a science fiction book I read. It's um, it's called The Forever War. It's a military science fiction novel by author Joe Hald- Haldeman, I think is the pronunciation. He was looking for a way to deal with his own experience coming back from Vietnam. I think I'm telling the story correctly. And then he came across the idea of relativistic travel and how it, it distorts within your frame of reference time, the passage of time. Like as you travel toward the speed of light, you you experience time differently. It moves more right. slowly for you and more rapidly for like the rest of the universe. Right. So the way that he wrote the book is that every time this one character goes off to war, because of all the relativistic travel to reach your enemy and to the, the engagement areas... Every time he returned home, like centuries would have gone by. And it was his way of dealing with the idea that when he came back from Vietnam, the world just seemed so different. It was like coming back to an alien planet. Like so much so much had changed in that period of time. Interesting. Yeah. So I think these Klingons coming back from a time where war has changed things and now the war has ended. Like that would be, I think, the biggest shock than just the time period. Yeah, so. I mean, I feel like, and I I could say this in a kind of sarcastic way, but I could also say it in like a really earnest way, and I think I'll go with the like sincerity. I feel like if I were, if I did for some reason have this responsibility of helping someone from 70 years ago adjust to living in the 21st century, I think I would maybe say lay low a bit. You know, like, let yourself kind of take stock of what's going on. You don't need to make any huge decisions. You can look around and see what things are like. And I sort of feel like that's what these Klingons, like, nobody nobody suggested that to them. And that's, it's really hard to be in a, a world that has changed when you are when you were unaware of those changes, but you you need to learn what they were. You have to you have to put in that work. Do you think this is experienced by people when they come out of prison? Could be. Yeah, like if someone's been in jail for 20, 30 years and they're they're let out of prison, like I imagine the world seems a lot different. I think with a lot of that, it's also like you're so like you've been intentionally disconnected and and unable to like like you you have grown and you have continued to change but not mm-hmm. in the same way that the world around you has changed whereas like in this particular situation it's like these these klingons haven't grown and they're changed. in the same state yeah, yeah. but yeah. i mean i do think that kind of lack of connection can be really disorienting Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's uh, 
was it Fry in Futurama? <laughs> yeah. How long is it? He's in for what? Three thousand years. Something. Or thousand something years, amazing. Something like, like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. It's. I guess it's interesting to think then how how much is change. For example, we talk about the difference between generations. Yeah. Like how is that is that true? Is that artificial? Is it? You now, how big are the differences? And I I don't. I don't know. And maybe the things that we think are the would be the most difficult for someone to acclimate to would actually not be the hardest thing. Maybe it would be something else. I guess it might even depend on the person. I don't know. Yeah. I remember when I was in university, I was taking a course in literary history. Forget I was talking to a prof, not my literary history prof, but I was talking about some paper and I was talking about how there was this belief, I didn't come up with this idea, but the idea that like every decade is a backlash to the decade before. So like in the 1940s, there was a lot of progress made, perhaps at least in part due to the war that like women were working. You know, there was there was that progress. And then in the 50s, there was like a push to have, you know, the kind of housewife culture. And then in the 60s, there was like a backlash against that. And again, more progress. And I remember mentioning this to this professor and he was like, yeah, and isn't it interesting that it somehow always just lines up with the decades like that? Yeah. Like, obviously, that it doesn't actually, but it in hindsight, it's very easy to like neatly categorize things into like generations or decades or like specific like temporal categories. Yeah. 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 They're otherwise arbitrary. Yeah. Yeah. Then I think about how much we're shaped by the the time that we're in. So she mentions that these are Klingons and that they're just going to behave as Klingons. They can't be changed. But they were Klingons that grew up in, in, in an era that no longer exists. Yeah. And so maybe you change then afterwards, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I guess, as we'll see in the episode, they're just looking for maybe an opportunity to make that possible. But because they had to act so quickly... Yeah. That, that may not be the case or may not have been possible. Yeah. Should we get into it? Let's do it. Let's do it. What happens in this episode? In this episode, the Enterprise rendezvous with a special envoy to strategize dealing with an old Klingon ship whose crew is coming out of stasis. Yeah. Or as Deanna says, stasis. Yeah, they... I can't, I can't, yeah. it's stasis, right? Like, <laughs> I think it is, I yeah. say stasis. I'm not going to say stasis. <laughs> I don't know if they say stasis in this episode. I know they have in past ones. I know. Ones. I I know I've definitely. Or stasis. Pulaski said stasis, but she also says data. So. Yeah. <laughs> one is my name. One is not. <laughs> we open with a poker game yeah. and Data thinks Worf doesn't know how to play because he keeps raising and calling, but Worf is actually winning. Yeah. Data's like, um, I think you should probably bend. And <laughs> they're like, I think you mean fold. And he's like, um, that's what I said. There is, I would say, one of the things I actually don't enjoy about poker or like a lot of card games in general, and I realized this watching this episode, is there's a certain kind of trash talk that people just like adopt when they're playing cards. And Worf kind of does it. He's like, talk or play, not both. And Jordy even is like, talk, talk, talk. Like, I don't know. I... I like it when my friends are nice to each other. I can't. I don't like. I don't like this kind of like pretend hostility. Poker was big in university. Like when yeah. I lived in residence, 
Yeah. A lot of the, for those of you who, who may not have heard earlier episodes, but Ruthie and I used to live in residence together. Yeah. But in my particular residence house, our, the guys I lived with were really into poker for a while. And I just, I just wasn't that interested in it. I couldn't, I, I mean, yeah. I have an issue with a lot of games that I just cannot bring myself to care about the rules enough to know what to do. So I did play <laughs> poker with some friends a few times and I would just call, occasionally raise. I may have told this story before about one time this one person went all in and I just wasn't paying attention. I was like, I'll raise you 50. And they were all like, he's all in. Like, yeah. <laughs> Like, I don't know. I don't even know what my cards mean. Yeah, half the time, I'm yeah. sure. Anyways, it wasn't it really, it wasn't my cup of tea. No. Though I do do actually enjoy Earl Grey. Yes, I do as well. So everyone folds except for Worf and Pulaski. And then... She's like, looks like it's just us, handsome. Just us, Which handsome. Which I... She, it seemed like she was being sarcastic, but Worf is very handsome. I think it's worth it. Yeah, very, yeah. Out. I think yeah. he's very distinguished. Yeah. Worf wins and Riker calls him the Iceman. He's like, the Iceman wins again. <laughs> this is like... Riker has never called him the Iceman before. No, and, and I don't think ever again. <laughs> no. I was kind so. of annoyed with it, but then I was like, Riker is the kind of person who would like make up a nickname and use it for like three days and then stop using it. <laughs> I think they're trying to emphasize his stoicism. Is that a word? Yes. Stoic stoicism? Yes. Because he, that that is a major theme of this episode is that he doesn't show his emotions well. You know, he kind of states the theme outright when they're just about to play a new a new hand, I guess. I don't even know. They're dealing again. Yeah. They're about to play. They're called to the bridge. And LaForge wonders if Worf was bluffing. And Worf says, Klingons never bluff. And Klingons I don't know about Klingons, but I can say in this episode, Worf does not bluff. No, he doesn't bluff. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. So Data reads the coordinates that they're directed to on the bridge, but there are no other orders, just a set of coordinates. And Picard says, whenever Starfleet gets enigmatic, I know we're about to face a challenge. And then we go to the intro. We get some exposition that they're near the Baratus system, where the first Federation colony was established 34 years ago. So that actually is relevant because there, there were no Federation colonies in this particular area 70 or so years ago. And now there are a lot of colonized planets and outposts in the area. Mm, so we've expanded. The Federation has yes. expanded. We get a hail from Admiral Gromick with Starfleet Command. She says they're soon going to be joined by a Federation emissary and the rendezvous is going to be tricky. So it's really important that they arrive on time. But she doesn't give any other details. She just says the envoy will fill you in. This is a top security matter. So Data tells Riker and Picard that apparently there were no ships available for the envoy to take. So they're traveling in a class eight probe. So basically they're traveling by freight, yeah. <laughs> essentially, or like by courier, but you're the courier yourself. They're like by drone almost. You drone. Yeah, you're being like a drone delivered, basically. The probe itself is only two meters long, but Picard points out that with transmitters and sensors removed and a life support system installed, a person could fit inside. And apparently this saves 6.1 hours of time. I just thought it was amazing that a person could travel at warp inside of a tiny tube. I guess that's a thing. I have been realizing in watching Star Trek more carefully, I don't fully understand how warp works. I think it's amazing that this tiny probe is capable of that high velocity because you'd think that it would need some kind of larger engine <laughs> or something. It's just like it depends on what kind of a cannon it's fired out of. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They just, they just shot this poor yeah. emissary out of a cannon. Yeah. So they approach the coordinates and intercept with the probe and put a tractor beam on it, on it, and then they beam it aboard. Is this the first time we've seen something like, well, we don't really see it, but that like something gets beamed just out of space? I suppose that is the case. Yeah, I know that transport at warp is also dangerous, but you could do it if both vessels are traveling at the same speed. Oh, so that's why they put the tractor beam. I think that's partly why. Yeah, they don't emphasize that point, but I know it's like a thing in the technical manual about how warp fields can bend and distort transport. Yes, I I remember hearing that, yeah. That is a thing, yeah. Yeah. So O'Brien opens the probe and Pulaski uh, and Riker go toward this person who's laying there and Pulaski is scanning them. They're wearing like an oxygen mask at this point. Yeah. And Pulaski says that their readings are interesting. And then the emissary takes off their oxygen mask and reveals themselves. And they appear to be Klingon. Yeah. But their forehead ridges are much less pronounced than Worf's. And I think than the Klingons we met back in season one. So she introduces herself as Kalar. Ah, Kalar. Kalar. And Riker greets her in Klingon. I thought I might try to say it. I'm not going to try to say it. I, was, I thought you were about to. I, I was like, don't check it out on me. No, I I don't <laughs> speak Klingon. I do enjoy watching it with the subtitles when, when they speak Klingon and seeing which letters are capitalized. Yes. But so, you know, Kalar uh, kind of jokes around. She's like, whoever said getting there was half the fun never rode in a class eight probe. I wonder how many people ever have ridden in a classic I, Yeah, probe. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a very small number. Perhaps it's just one. When I was watching Star Trek as a young person, and probably admittedly even still, I had a huge crush on Kalar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Kalar is, is really fun and very beautiful, and I love her as a character. So I'm glad that we finally have met her. Yeah, Kalar is great. We should note... Kalar is played by Susie Plaxton, who also mm-hmm. played Dr. Salar in Schizoid Man. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and I read, I don't, I don't know how true this is, but I read that originally one of the writers had the idea that Dr. Salar and Worf would have like a, a romance subplot, but they, oh. <laughs> uh, that got let go in favor of this storyline with the same actor. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think to the benefit of all of us. Yeah, I like this one. Pulaski wants to know how Kalar is feeling. And Pulaski says that Kalar's vital signs are atypical for a Klingon. And that's when we will learn that Kalar is not entirely Klingon. Her father was Klingon, but her mother was human. Yeah. So we go to the observation lounge. Riker introduces Kalar and Worf immediately looks unhappy to see her. Yeah, he's not entirely professional no, in this he's particular not. circumstance. In his defense, she is less professional. Like not not, not a lot of not a lot of defense, but like <laughs> she is she is worse. Yeah. Uh yes. She's um how would how would you okay, so if no one had ever seen Star Trek before, yeah. how would you describe Kalar? She's she's very much like a free spirit. Yeah. She is, I'd say she's a bit provocative. Like, I think she is trying to not necessarily make Worf uncomfortable, but she is trying to push against him a little bit to get some kind of reaction. She very much plays by her own rules. Yeah. She's a little like the D&D ranking system came to mind here. She's almost like chaotic good. 
Okay, yeah. She does. She doesn't really care as much about the playbook. She's a diplomat who very much is just wants to get to the heart of people. She's very like open with her emotions. She's playful. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. So she walks into this observation room and she basically is introduced to everybody. And then she's like, "So, Worf, this is where you've been hiding. I told you we'd meet again." Like very much like an informal casual kind of way of introducing herself to him not really taking into account or not really caring that that might make everyone else feel uncomfortable to have to (laughs) witness this interaction (laughs) i do think it's funny that like picard introduces her to everyone they all stand to greet her except for troy troy just sits yes (laughs) Troy's like i don't stand to meet people i'm not that (laughs) um you know what though i like that troy and kalar get along they don't try to make it into some kind of like you know you know women blah blah, blah so catty or whatever like they get right they get along yeah, really well in this episode i i what i like about kalar is that her but i think provocative is what you said yeah. is that her interactions with people in a way similar to troy reveals people's emotions mm. like her her presence like reveals people's true feelings and intentions and that's one of the things i really like about her interesting she's not she doesn't mince words she's very candid i like her it, it also makes me wonder throughout this episode of like how did her and Worf end up together yeah what like, happened six years happen? ago we don't know, but we know that Worf is frustrated enough to say, I have nothing to say to you, <laughs> right in front of the crew, yeah. like while they're being introduced in the observation room. And everyone just is kind of like, oh, that's awkward. But anyways, she doesn't, she's just like, whatever. She lets it roll off her back and goes into explaining their mission. Yes. So the mission is that the Klingon ship, the Tong, was sent out over 75 years ago when the Federation and the Klingon Empire were at war. This ship is now returning home and it is about to reach its awakening point. So the crew has for the last 75 years been in cryogenic sleep. And when they wake up, they won't know that the war is over and the ship will be in range of all of these Federation outposts that have only existed for the last 34 years. And and these like colonies that, that can't defend themselves. And there is a Klingon ship on its way, the Prang, but it is two days behind the Enterprise. It's it's up to the Enterprise to deal with this with this ship. I'm gonna say probably it's not useful to try to figure out what kind of mission just involves you sleeping for 75 years and then waking up. I can't really get my head around that, but that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like a Voyager situation. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> I like you know what one of my favorite things in Star Trek is the. The classic, we're the only vessel in range, which is like this yeah. is pretty much the plot of like yeah. every story in Star Trek. Like, okay, is there any other ship that can make it? No, we're the only ones in range. We're the only vessel in range. I, I should start it's using that. I should put that on a t-shirt, <laughs> yeah. basically. We're the only vessel the only in range. Vessel in range. Kalar doesn't think that there's a point in talking to the Klingon. So even though she's she's basically a diplomat, but she's saying that in this case, talking to the Klingons is futile because they were raised at a time. Uh, or they grew up at a time where they were raised to despise humans, and she thinks that the Enterprise will have to destroy them. But Picard doesn't like that idea. He he doesn't like the idea that this is inevitable, and so he wants options, and he says, Worf, you are going to work with Kalar on figuring out options. I love that. I love that Picard, that's one of his, his classic leadership styles and problem-solving styles. He's like, let's try to figure out as many options as we have. 
And if we don't like the ones we have, let's figure out more. Yeah, he's all about he's all about options. He's not about like find me the solution. He's like just try things and we'll we'll see what try we things. can do. And using all the crew and their own expertise as efficiently as possible to find those other options. I always appreciate that about him. And he knows that there's probably issues here (laughs) with assigning Worf to Kalar. And so all the people leave the observation lounge except Worf. And Worf gets up to go and Picard's like, are there going to be issues working with Kalar? And Worf is like, uh, kind of insinuates yes. And Picard's like, is there personal reasons? He's like, yes. He's like, are there professional reasons? He's like, no. And, and then like, he pauses and it's just like, I withdraw yeah, my never request. mind. Never mind. Like, <laughs> Worf is like, I really think someone else would be better at this. And Picard's like, oh, because you don't want to? Yeah. Too bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Deal with I it. I mean, I do think, like, Picard is like, you know who's going to be good at working on this is the one who just clearly expressed disappointment that this person is on the ship. But, but he is a tactical officer. Like... He's a tactical officer, and given the nature of this mission that they're dealing with other Klingons, it probably makes sense that he's going to be the best person to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. So in the corridor, uh, there's an interesting conversation that I was sort of thinking about in the context of the last episode we recorded. Troy and Kayla are discussing the different experiences that they have had growing up in mixed families, because Troy shares that her mother is Betazoid, her father was human, and Kalar mentions feeling trapped between cultures. But Troy says she never felt that way and she tried to experience the richness and the diversity of the two worlds. And I was thinking about that in relation to what we discussed last week with how uncomfortable she gets when Loxana comes on board and how we kind of wondered if maybe the, the Betazoid culture is less... There, there are fewer secrets if people are just more open about things. And Troy has learned or Troy lives in a society that doesn't operate that way. And so I, I think sometimes she does feel that discomfort. Yeah. Like she wants to be true to, to both both of these cultures that are really important to her. But she also, like she felt embarrassed by her mom. Yeah. And, and Kalar thinks that she got the worst of humans. Their bad, bad sense, sense of humor. humor yeah. I think some humans are funny. Yeah, she's like, well, I got my mom's humor and my dad's temper. So. Dad's temper, yeah. She says that her Klingon side can be terrifying and that it's something that she tries to keep bottled up. Yeah, which always works well, right? I think Kalar then in that case, not to, you know, try not to jump franchises too often, but I think she's probably an inspiration to Bellata Torres' character. Because yeah. Bellata had 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 made similar, yeah. expressed similar sentiments as well about her Klingon half. Star Trek sometimes explores this and then sometimes doesn't. But there, you know, one of the things we have talked about in various episodes is that sometimes the like a particular culture will have like one trait, but that doesn't really make sense. So you know, it's a lot more nuanced than that. But this idea that Klingons are just aggressive and always want to fight and obsessed with honor in the Federation society, which is in many ways human North American society. Yeah. That doesn't always fit. So again, and Worf has experienced this too, that when, even though there are a lot of really wonderful things about Klingons, which we see in later seasons. And we saw a little bit with the, you know, talking about the tea ceremony and the love poetry. 
a lot of those things are not valued in the Federation. So it does make sense that they would want to bottle them up. And it also makes sense that that doesn't always work. Right. Yeah, I think that makes sense that it's it might be the the need to bottle it up to survive and or mask in the in the one environment that you're in. Although I don't think she hides a lot of her true feelings. (laughs) (laughs) So because it's Kalar and that's that's not what she that's not how she rolls. So they the next scene is in like an uh, I think it's a research laboratory of some type. We don't see this set very often. No, it has played a couple of things already. I think it played like Data's lab when he was uh, writing to Sarjenka in Pen Pals. Yeah, I think it's also the Astrometrics lab yeah. later on. Uh, but it's, yeah, they use it for, it's like a kind of a multi-purpose lab space. Unless it's supposed to be dressed up as a different room each time. I'm not really yeah, sure. I don't but. know. Worf is sitting at a console and Kalar enters and she's wearing, what is she wearing, Ruthie? Okay, I I really want to talk about Kalar's wardrobe because I it figured is you would. amazing. <laughs> okay, she has a full bodysuit in like a really beautiful rich dark red and then on top of that she has same color leather boots and like a cropped jacket and then the jacket sleeves and the boots and this belt that she has around the waist of her bodysuit they have these like golden ovals she looks amazing like she she says she was late because she was making herself beautiful. She doesn't have to make herself beautiful. She is beautiful, <laughs> but she looks amazing. This is a great outfit. Yeah, Worf ignores her, basically. <laughs> so she tries to bait him to pay attention to her. She's like, what's wrong? I don't bite. She's like, well, actually, that's wrong. I do bite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we learned that they knew each other six years ago. A really funny line from Worf when she asks like, why he won't even look at her. He's like, I'm familiar with your appearance. I am familiar with your appearance. Yeah. And then Kalar mentions that she says, it's not like we tried it and it didn't work. You never gave us a chance. And she thinks that there's that they have unfinished business. But Worf is like, no, we, we don't. Yeah. So he's trying to just focus on the mission. And Kalar... It's getting frustrated because she doesn't, well, probably for one thing, she wants to talk more about the personal side of the relationship, but she also doesn't think that there's any point to diplomacy with these Klingons. That there's nothing to understand. That these Klingons, they're all attack. It's they're in their minds that we're the enemy. Yeah, I, I think she's putting Worf in a really difficult position because he has been ordered by his captain to work with her to come up with options and... She's refusing and she and he cannot like fulfill that order because she she's like, well, there are no options. Well, I'm not going to do that. And also he doesn't I don't think he he doesn't want to complain to Picard about her, probably partly because of their history. And I also feel like he doesn't want to complain because maybe he would worry that people would use their history to invalidate his complaints. Oh, yeah, maybe. Like if he were like, she's not she's not working with me. She's not doing what you asked us to do. And it would be like, listen, Worf, I know it's hard to work with an ex-girlfriend, but, you know, and and I do think that she really, I get that, that she doesn't think there are any good options, but she does not even consider anything. Yeah. Yeah. So Worf says that there are always options and Kalar wants to know what happened to his Klingon fatalism. And he says something that I think is really important. Yeah. About his character and growth 
as he says, My experiences aboard this ship have taught me most problems have more than one solution. Yeah. I think that's really important for Worf. It's actually one of the things I like the most about this recent season of Picard is the way that they've continued to build upon his character arc. Because I think Worf is the person that they try to show the most amount of character development and growth. I think he goes off course a bit in DS9, but I <laughs> I think that this is important, that he shows that he's open to having these experiences. Yeah, he grows a lot throughout TNG. Yes. He's a, he's a great character. And not to say that he wasn't, you know, not to say that he didn't have good qualities. He's always had great qualities, but Absolutely. He, you definitely see him grow and change. And I like that he attributes that to this work that he's doing on the Enterprise, that yeah, yeah they're... There is usually more than one solution to a problem. Kilar says that Starfleet hasn't improved him. He's still stubborn. <laughs> yeah, but like it has. <laughs> yeah, it totally has. Yeah, and she should be able to see that out of anybody. She's probably just being grumpy. She's annoyed, actually, I think, that it has improved him. She's yeah, like, maybe. you are different, but this is not an improvement because I don't like it. I don't like it. Yeah, it's, it's not. You're not giving me the things I want to hear. Yeah, exactly. So then Kalar's like, okay, fine, I'll do what we've been asked to do. And she says, upon due consideration of the problem and careful examination of all possible options, my original recommendation stands, meeting adjourned. Then she just kind of storms out of her room and you see her like on her way to her quarters. She's just seething like she's so angry and she gets to her quarters and she smashes a glass table. And then looks really, like, sad and disappointed with herself. And Troy enters right there, like, right at that moment. I feel like <laughs> Troy could, like, sense that. She's like, whoop, there is a very strong feeling of anger. Oh, coming from over there. Okay, yep, there. Oh, yep, it's Kalar. Okay, 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 I'm yep. here. <laughs> so Troy enters and, and basically she's saying that Kalar is upset. And Kalar's like, could you tell that with your beta Z powers? And she's like, well, that and mostly the broken table. <laughs> So I think, which was great because she kind of breaks the tension, Troy, by using that joke. They get along really well here because Kalar's like, I don't I don't want to be counseled. And Troy's like, actually, I was going to suggest to you, like, do an exercise program on the holodeck. And they kind of joke around about how that'll keep her from breaking the furniture. Breaking the furniture. Yeah, she, she yeah. could break things in the holodeck. Exactly. So Kalar approaches the holodeck and now she's got, like, this exercise uniform on. So what is what does that okay, look like? Okay, I want to... First of all, I want to say that she had not selected any particular exercise program yet. So this is just her standard workout wear. Workout wear. And it includes a hot pink and black striped, like irregular striped, uh, again, full body suit. But then on one side, so the shoulders on both sides and then her right arm and her right leg are all covered in this sort of like it's like it looks like a plastic armor. And she didn't know like she could have been doing jazzercise. She could have been doing like, <laughs> I don't know, going for a run. She didn't know what exercise program she was doing, but she was like, I need full body suit and armor on my right side. So here's the question, Ruthie. Yeah. How did all these amazing uniforms yeah. fit into that class eight probe? <laughs> I did not think of that. Right. Unless, were they replicated afterward? I'm not sure. She's like, I don't need that much oxygen. I need I need my yeah. outfits. So she looks through the exercise programs and she finds Worf's calisthenics program, which we saw in 
season one when he and Riker did this same program. So the holodeck opens and it's this like kind of eerie outdoor scene and there's this like huge gauntlet on the ground which she picks up and puts on. And then we go back to the bridge. Then we go back to the bridge. And Data updates Picard on the status of the Klingon ship. They're about 15 hours away. Uh, and Worf enters and kind of relieves the security officer. And they want to know why he's back and not working with Kalar. Yeah. And he explains that Kalar has declared a short recess. <laughs> yeah. He's like about to say something. He's like, Kalar has. And then he's like, I probably shouldn't complain. Yeah, she's declared a short recess. Worf wants to run a diagnostic of the tactical backup equipment, which makes sense because they might get into battle. And Riker's like, well, we already, we've already done all that. And he's like, well, I want to do it again. And Riker's kind of taken aback that he's that frustrated with him. So Picard walks over and is like, takes him aside basically and says, I order you to relax. Yeah, and, and like, he shouts <laughs> in his face. Yeah. I am relaxed. I am relaxed. Picard, like, doesn't even have to say anything. Picard just looks at him and he's like, sorry, 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 sorry. Riker's like, the Iceman's finally melting. Yeah. So, again, Riker's like, I'm going to make this nickname stick. Yeah. It, do- it doesn't. Everyone's like, no, that's that's a dumb nickname, Riker. <laughs> yeah. So Worf's like, okay, well, where am I going to go to, to let off some steam? I guess I'll go to the holodeck and activate my calisthenics program. Yeah. He sees it's already in use. Yeah, so he uh, he kind of watches Kalar. She's attacked from behind by a creature that is like vaguely reminiscent of like costumes that are appropriative of various indigenous cultures, like kind of like feathered headdress yeah. type. Yeah, yeah. She fights off this one person creature. I don't know, and then she's attacked behind by the like Skeletor type creature. The Skeletor we, creature, we yeah. Met in the previous one. Absolutely. Yeah, and she she fights them off pretty easily. Worf watches. She defeats them both. He approaches her, and she like gets ready to fight, but then realizes that he's not part of the program, and she's like, "Not much of a program. Not much of a program, which is a bit saucy." Yeah, that, that, that's Kalar for you. Worf picks up two swords, and then he's like, computer, level two. And then the creature, one of them wakes up, one of the creatures that's already dead. And then, like, other creatures join in, and he tosses her one of the swords, and now they're fighting with swords. I still think that, like, there's an there's another creature this time. So there's those two, and then a third one joins. I still think that one looks like a Gorn. It's got, it's kind of lizardy. There's also kind of, like, an insect thing with these big, like, bee eyes. Yeah. Fly yeah. eye things, which is, which is fun. And so they they go about stabbing them and slide. At one point, Worf hits one of them and like slices it in half across yeah. his torso, and it like the top half kind of slides off and then it yeah. disappears in some vapor. Then Kalar goes to attack Worf, but it's kind of like it's like a sexy attack, right? There's got it's got some angst to it. Yes, and, but Worf pushes her off. He pushes her off, and then now you have mentioned to me before that you don't like how women are often like grabbed by the arm on Star Trek. It does it does happen frequently. Yeah. Mainly though to prevent them from making a decision or from right. going somewhere right. or ex- exercising their own free will. Yeah, here I think they are I would say they're both being a little hesitant and cautious, but I also think they are both enjoying what's happening. This is the impression I get. They're kind of grabbing 
Like they each have the other's arm in one hand and they kind of do this. It's a little weird. They're sort of sniffing each other's hands. I'm guessing that, well, we know that uh, without overanalyzing the biology, um, (laughs) that Klingon's scent is very strong, right? And so this is is probably going to be a part of their, of the mating is going to be scent. So I think they're they're smelling wrists and hands, but there's probably pheromones and stuff. This is me analyzing what's going on in the holodeck. But I think that's kind of all what's happening here. I think in Star Trek... I don't I don't know. I'll have to watch the later seasons more closely. There are a lot of moments that like that are meant to be, you know, clearly leading up to sex, but they never really show anything beyond kissing. So the kissing has to be the last thing you see. So that all of this is leading up to that. Yeah, and and as you said about like the the physical like the like the holding of the arms and wrists mm-hmm. and everything, they also insinuate all through. But I think starting here, but also the rest of Star Trek, that Klingon sex is like is rough. It is because rough. there was there was talking about how like Judzia has like broken ribs and stuff in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, no, she doesn't complain about it. She enjoys that. Yeah, so yeah. it's but it's but it's consensual. That's yes, the important. Yes. yes. At one point, Kalar has her hand in a fist, and Worf has his hand wrapped around her fist and you can see she has these like obviously beautifully manicured long brown nails they are like digging into her own palm enough that she's like drawing blood and it's like dripping down her hand and again she is very much enjoying this yes it's I think yeah this was this is probably the first depiction of Klingon sex. I don't, I don't did we see Klingon sex in the original series? I, I doubt it. I highly <laughs> doubt it. I am, it's not coming to mind, but I yeah. don't think I'm missing anything there. So, so yeah, this, but I, and I think this was, they're like, okay, how are, what is Klingon sex going to be like? And they decided it's going to be It's very rough. steamy. It's, it is very steamy. It's very steamy. And we, uh, we cut to commercial, right? Right before anything happens. But when we come when we when we come back from the commercial, everyone's fully dressed still. Okay, and it makes you wonder that like, wait, wait, did, did anything happen? <laughs> this is one of like, I I know people joke about this on TV. This actually is one of my favorite things. Is when someone says something and it's meant to be like a playful after sex kind of joke, but like it's. It couldn't have been after sex because Kalar had to put her whole bodysuit back on. Worf had to put his entire uniform back on. No one's hair is like even messed up or anything. Yeah, yeah. And then Kalar's like, some calisthenics programs are better than others. Like, Which is a funny joke. That it is, is funny. funny it would have like made more sense for them to say it. You know, like they're like lying there naked or whatever, but they're not going to show that. Obviously, no. this is Star Trek we're talking about. It's Star here. Trek. There are some boundaries we can't cross. We can't show any skin. Yeah. None. <laughs> yeah. We can do all that other stuff, but we can't. We can't show any skin. No, no, no. So Worf is perched on like a rock above her. Yeah. Also fully dressed, and he's upset that she's making jokes because he's taking this really seriously. And Worf, he sees this act of intimacy as like a very serious thing and he's looking at it more steeped around the context of like Klingon tradition. I do think Worf, like he he makes a good point that sometimes when people use humor as a shield, they talk a lot but don't say, they don't actually say very much. And Kalar points out that she's like, yeah, well, you just don't say anything at all. 
Like, at least I'm giving you something to work with and you're not giving me anything. Yeah, he says something here too where he's like, uh, when, when, when one doesn't have the words. Yeah. And yeah, maybe sometimes, maybe, does that mean Worf often doesn't know what to say sometimes in situations? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that Worf, okay, as as I am demonstrating right now, I don't always have a sentence fully formed before I start talking. <laughs> like <laughs> I, I have a general thought and I start talking and, you know, I get there eventually. But I don't think Worf likes to do that. I think Worf is like, no, I'm going to wait until I know exactly what I'm going to say. And that means he probably talks a lot less. And they talk about why they didn't, like, why didn't we do this? Do they mean their relationship? Because this doesn't, if they mean in terms of, like, sleeping together, that doesn't really make sense with what we know about them. I get the feeling that they met six years ago. They were attracted to each other. They each knew the other was attracted, and then Worf was like, we're not doing this. Like, I don't think anything actually happened six years ago. But didn't it have to? Nope. That you're you're thinking about right now. No? Am I? Is that what's going on now? That's what just happened. Oh, okay. Listeners, wait a few years, and you'll know what we're talking about. (laughs) I was trying to figure out the age of that young being in the future. I didn't realize that was it. Okay, anyways. So all of a sudden, Worf gets up and he starts speaking Klingon to the, the skies. The holographic skies. The holographic sky. And Kalar realizes that he is trying to marry her. Basically, he's making a proclamation. Either of marriage or engagement. We're not really sure. Yeah, he, he kind of says they already are married. He's like, that we made it. And she's like, yeah, I know. I was there. <laughs> it's, this is an interesting dynamic to me. And I'll talk more about it at the end. At this point, Kalar says, it didn't mean anything. It was nice. It was wonderful. But it didn't mean anything. And Worf cannot believe that. He's like, that that can't be true. Worf is really thinking about this as part of Klingon culture, that they, once they mate, they mate, like, for life. That's not her style. No, and Kalar is like, that's your way. It is not my way. You can't impose your way on me. I'm half human and... I'm not going to take the oath with you. He insinuates then that this meant nothing to her. And I think this is an interesting way to, because this happens even with humans. I don't think this is necessarily just between Klingons and whatever. But people, I think people have differing views on what the meaning is behind physical intimacy as well. Does it have to, does it mean then that this has to lead to like a long-term relationship can it not? And I, I think it'd be both things, but it should be people should be clear ahead of time as to what that's going to be. I think that's the mean the main thing. I think so. I mean, obviously, you know, things happen spontaneously and you don't always plan, but I do think like as a culture, we tend to like treat communication as something that's like not romantic or not sexy. Right, <laughs> right. And, yeah. Like it, it is. It should be. How is it not romantic to be like, this is what I, this is what I would like from you. And this is, and you make me really happy and talking and be, you know, being vulnerable and authentic with each other. It, what it means. And we talked about this a little bit in, uh, again, the last episode where you mentioned that, you know, the idea of like, to get someone to like you, you need to like trick them into liking you. Right. I yeah. think there is a, f- a fear of, well, if I'm upfront about what I want, 
they might say no. So instead, yeah. I should just roll with it. Yeah, but then somehow impose it on them. Like, yeah, that's that's not fair either. Yeah. So it's like, and I I think that there's there's also a spectrum here that they are not allowing themselves because one of them is like, I don't want to be committed forever, and then the other person is like, Well, then this doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And I was like, I think there's an in between there. Like, it can still you can still have a moment like this with someone that means something, and she tries to say that she's like. It's glorious and it was amazing, but it is what it is. Yeah. But then she also says herself, but it doesn't mean anything. I don't think she means it that way, I don't think she does. I think also, like, she... I mean, later she does kind of say, like, it it did mean something. But I also think she's like, it doesn't mean that. Right. And and that's where she's having a hard time. And I, I think also she realizes that being... It's maybe not just about being married to Worf. But then the proximity to that culture that she has struggled with so much mm. and clearly has made a point of being apart or separate from. Yeah. And now she would have to live in that world. And yeah. she doesn't she doesn't really want to. Because where Worf really wants to be closer to Klingons all the time and Klingon culture, I think we've seen her much more reluctant and 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 distancing of that. Yeah. I mean, I also think like I mean, I think that is absolutely right. And also, I think she doesn't want to be married right now, like whether it's to war for anyone else. It's not like she's rejecting him. You know, maybe she would be happy being in a relationship with him even. I don't know. But the fact that he's like, no, we're going to mate for life now. She's like, well, I don't <laughs> want that with anyone at the moment. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. that's her right. She, she Absolutely. Yeah. We we cut back to the bridge and all we get from there is that we're approaching the coordinates. So things are, we're getting closer. This also serves as a break between that conversation and the next one we're yeah. about to have between them. Because now they're back in that office and Kalar is back to her red, like, working outfit. Yeah. And so she's there on her own. Worf enters with Data and he is, you know, he commends her on, okay, yeah, it's a little late, but you're you're doing your duty and she's running computer simulations. And then Kalar notices that Data is there and, and mentions, you know, having an Android chaperone, which Data doesn't fully understand. And then she also says, I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Kalar asks if Worf would really have gone through. Like They start having this conversation right in front oh, of Data. Poor Data. And he's just standing there. He probably finds it fascinating. Yeah. But Kalar asks if Worf would have really gone through with the oath. And asks what he's like. What do you what, what do you really want? Or if you only just care about honor? Yeah, because like, and I think this is part of the issue, and it it sort of becomes more clear to me later on, and like at the very end of the episode. But I think when when he was saying this didn't mean anything to you, I think she felt in some ways similarly that she's like, do I really mean anything to you, or do you just feel this obligation? to marry me because we hooked up. Like right. is it about me or is it like is it is it because you like me or is it just about honor? And right, Worf right, right. is like is it about me or is it just about sex? Like they're 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 they I think in a lot of ways like they both want the other one to care for them or to say that they care for them. But neither of them is showing it in a way that the other one can really hear. They speak different love languages. <laughs> <laughs> that could be it. That could be the That's issue. what it is. That's what it is. Yeah. So at, at one point, Kalar asks Data, she's like, whose behavior is more perplexing, human 
or Klingon. And Data's like, <laughs> he says it's difficult to choose, but what he means is like, please leave me out of this. I, I thought that was a very diplomatic answer on Data's yeah, part it himself. It was. She then says to them, she's like, okay, we have a couple different options. And there's a neat transition because she continues the same conversation, but now she's explaining it on to the crew in the observation lab. Yeah, so she starts yeah, like by it. starts by explaining it in that that science room or whatever, but yeah. then down there in the observation lounge. So, okay, first we've got the crew of the Tong are still asleep when the Enterprise reaches them, in which case they can just beam over, adjust the controls so that they remain asleep long enough for the other Klingon vessel to arrive. Or second, that they're already awake, in which case they're going to likely attack the nearest outpost, and then we'll have to defend and probably destroy them. Yeah. So Troy points out that these Klingons were on a scientific voyage. I don't know what science they were doing in cryogenic sleep, but whatever. They're on a scientific voyage, so maybe they won't be violent. Maybe they won't attack. And Kaylar is like, she's like, first of all, they wouldn't be on a scientific voyage during a war. They wouldn't be out just doing scientific research for its own sake. But also, it doesn't matter. As soon as they see a Federation target, they will attack. That Those would have been the orders. Like, whatever your mission is, attack the Federation. And she also says that because Picard wonders, like, if they could disable the Tong rather than destroy it. And she says, well, if we do that, then the captain, Katamok, will just destroy it himself because Klingons don't surrender. They don't bluff and they don't surrender. So kind of a no-win scenario still. Yeah. And it's that moment where Data calls from the bridge and says that they have found the ship. And that the the Tong's propulsion system is inactive, so they're probably asleep, but then the ship fires on them. <laughs> and so Data's like, however I could be in error. Yeah. So the Tong cloaks itself and Kaylar is like, well, you have had your chance for diplomacy. Now it is time to fire. Luckily, LaForge is able to find the ship even though it's cloaked because those old shields didn't really block the gamma ray output the way that uh, the newer shields do, I guess. So they're able to kind of chase them and follow them even though they're cloaked. Yeah, this is like the version 1.0 cloaking device. It's not, yeah. not very good. Yeah. So Kalar tells the, the Picard to let the Klingons die in battle at very least. Like give them an honorable death. Yeah. But then as this happens, Worf gets a realization. And he, he leans over to Picard and says that he can give Picard another option. So we get a nice little, like, there's it's the way they do it, it's a nice little surprise. We get a captain's log and the, you know, we, we start, we're outside the ship. Um, that They have located the Tong. They're about to implement the option presented by Worf. They sort of overtake the Tong, the tong and get in front of it so that it, I don't know why it couldn't go around them. But anyway, they stop the <laughs> Tong right in their path. So the Tong decloaks. And fires, and then we see Picard look off screen and ask if Worf is ready. And then and then we get, like, again, this sort of shot. We're outside, and then we're inside the ship, but we can't see the full bridge. We're, like, looking at the view screen. We hear Worf give the order to open hailing frequencies. And then when three Klingon faces, they all appear on screen, and they're very confused because then we get the plan, which is that Kalar and Worf are sitting in Riker and Picard's chairs, and they're wearing full, like, Klingon uniforms. They look great. They look good. They look really yeah. cool. Can we just pause and talk a little bit about the fact that Katamok's actor is a white person? Yes. So, I mean, he has blue eyes, 
I don't want to I don't want to like get too much into it because I don't think we're necessarily the right people but it does make me uncomfortable to see he's he's played by a white actor but his face is brown yeah and they and Klingons uh as portrayed in the original series also usually like at least in the first couple seasons uh season one maybe two where they darken their faces yeah and I think it sort of insinuates it in uh that they are insidious yeah yeah it's like this this implication and then the main Klingon on TNG is played by Michael Dorn, who is a black person. But it, yeah, like it, it does look like they're trying to make the Klingons look like they are black. And it's, you know, it's not the same as a character with green skin or a character with fish scales. Like it's not because it, it, it does, it does feel to me like, like blackface. I think they start doing the makeup differently in Deep Space Nine. And I think you, you mentioned that earlier when you yeah. were talking about it too. Because I don't think they do that with Martok, for example. No, I don't think they do. And I, I'm glad that they don't really keep it up. Because, yeah, it's super not cool. I mean, I also think early on, certainly in, in TNG, a lot of the other species are played by like just white actors. Like they... they look like white humans except they have this you know one difference and then they started like casting more diverse actors as the as time went on but you know we got like in Voyager we had a Vulcan played by a black person and we had you know like the Vulcans are the race that I can think of that are portrayed by off the top of my head like the greatest diversity of human actors like Mm, there are Asian actors who played Vulcans black white I think with Klingons, I only remember ever seeing black or white actors. And I wonder if that's, is that like a choice intentionally? I'm not really sure. Interesting. Yeah. So I don't want to dwell on it for too long, but I just, I didn't feel comfortable going through this and not mentioning it. Like you can see these bright blue eyes. He also has a strange, I couldn't place his accent. Oh my gosh. All I could say was he sounded American. Yeah, he sounds like he sounds like an American Klingon. It's he, very strange. He really does. He's like, "What's going on here? What's going on here?" Yeah, uh, he sounds like a, some kind of like Klingon cowboy. It's very, yeah. it's an, it's an yeah. odd. Anyways, it's it's. I don't know. If that's her way of trying to say like these are older Klingons. I'm not sure. Anyways, so Katabok says he has standing orders to fire on on all Federation ships. Worf is like. Did it not occur to you that the war would be over by now? So basically, he's trying to imply that the Klingons have taken over the Federation, and that is why they are in command of this Federation ship. You know what, though, that I like? He doesn't ever lie. He says, I am Worf in command of the Starship Enterprise, and he is in command. Like, he transfers command back to, like, yeah, Picard says, congratulations on your first command. He is in command. He doesn't say the Klingons won. He just says the war is over. He says, trust your eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he never says, don't worry. We we took over this ship. We won. You know, he never lies. That is a good point. I had not thought of that. But you're right. Yeah, he doesn't actually speak a lie. Yeah, at one point, like, Katamok's like, how do I know this isn't a Federation trick? And then Worf is like, listen, I've had enough of you. I've tolerated a lot. I've, I've been patient because you just woke up from 75 years of sleeping. But if you don't lower your shields, we're going to fire. And then he tells the tactical officer to lock phasers. And he's like, has the, 
Captain Katamaka lowered his shield, and they're like, no, and he's like, very well, fire all phasers, which I presumably is a lot of phasers. Yeah, remember from the beginning of this episode, Klingons don't bluff. Klingons don't bluff, yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. So he's probably ready to just blow them up. I yield command to you. I yield command to you. They're done. They're done now. Picard and Riker enter the bridge from the ready room and Worf says that he cedes command back to the ship and Picard compliments him. He's like, very well done in your first command. Yeah. And Riker asks how he likes it and he said it's a comfortable chair. Which comfortable chair. I, I bet. I bet it is, yeah. yeah. And Kalar tries to be flirty and says yeah. that he also like wore it well. You know, probably maybe enjoyed seeing him in the captain's chair. But yeah. he like rolls his eyes and just walks away. It's like, I'm not even going to take a compliment not, from you. No, even take comment. Yeah. So we go to the transporter room and Worf relieves O'Brien. He's like <laughs> He's like, I need to I need to be alone to ignore my ex-girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was kind of odd that he relieved him and then it was just like I thought then he was gonna give some kind of emotional goodbye or something, but he's like, nope, he just kind of is like, Okay, well there's nothing more to be said. Yeah, I mean I <laughs> The fact that he relieves O'Brien says that he knows Kalar is going to say something. So he, it is kind of rude that he's just being silent, waiting for her to, he's like, to nope, I'm going to make you say it. And she gets mad at him. She's like, damn you, Worf. You, yeah. You'd actually let me go without saying another word, wouldn't you? Yeah. And, and then she tells him that last night did have meaning and that she actually was tempted to take the oath with him. And that scared her. Because she's never had such strong feelings toward anyone before. And Worf says that he hasn't either. And so that's when she notes that this was more than just honor. Like this, he actually does have feelings for her. She actually does have feelings for him. But because she thought that Worf was only doing it for honor and not for any feelings. And and he thought that she was refusing to do it because she didn't have feelings and not because she did. So that's, that's a good moment between them. And so it is, yeah. Worf holds up his hand between them and then she clasps it and they kind of hold hands together, staring at each other's eyes. And then Kalar steps onto the transporter pad. Yeah. And Worf tells her that he will not be complete without her. Amazing. Yeah. And then beams her onto the tongue. She doesn't reply. She does not reply. She yeah. does not reply. But she did say earlier, she said that maybe the next time they see each other... Uh, she'll be harder to get rid of. Harder to get rid of. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, yeah, he won't be complete without her. And then she's gone. And that is the end. It was a good episode. I like this one. I like this one. Yeah, we've got two more. Can you believe just two more left of season two? Oh, my goodness. And one of them is is a very notorious finale. <laughs> one of them, I, I really like the next episode that we're going to do. What is the next one again? It is Peak Performance. Oh, yeah. Like that's a that great one. episode. Yeah. Uh, the the other one is, is a clip show. <laughs> uh, it is. Yeah. Um, I think there was a writer's strike going I think on. so, yeah. Is that what it was? Yeah. yeah. I, we'll, we'll do that. I'm sure you'll find that in your... Um, in my Googling. Always oh, very thorough yeah. research. <laughs> yeah. Do you, have any, do you have any final thoughts on this one? I think that's it. I'm glad that we've we managed to de-escalate this potential war. Well, not war, engagement, uh, <laughs> safely. And that everyone was happy. The yeah. only casualties were Kalar and Worf in their self-inflicted but consensual yeah. harm. And the, <laughs> the holographic characters in the calisthenics oh, yeah. program. That's true. They but were also that's okay. like hastily dispatched. Yeah, they, uh, 
you know, gave their lives for a worthy cause. <laughs> they did. Yeah. They yeah. absolutely did. Yeah, I guess they never... Because uh, later on, Worf brings him into that program we're going to see in the future. I don't think he mentions, so, though, like, you were conceived here. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> He's like, wait, what? <laughs> Anyways, that doesn't happen. Yeah. <sighs> Anyways, on that note. On that note. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of With the First Link. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Our cover art was created by Nathan Nunn, and you can find more of his work at NathanNunn.ca. Our theme song is An Amazing Adventure by Flame Lion Studio. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at FirstLinkPod or send us an email at FirstLinkPod at gmail.com to tell us how you would acclimate someone after 75 years of cryosleep. I'm Ruthie. And I'm Matthew. You know what they say about traveling in a Class 8 Pro. Bring half as many clothes and twice as many oxygen tanks. 